Well, good morning. I am very excited to be here with you. And as Reynolds said, Brad is not here. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If you want to go ahead and pull out your Bibles, we are going to be camping out in Luke chapter 24. I think when I talked to Brad last, he said that he and Joseph were doing some kind of primitive arts festival, which I think means he's making tomahawks and arrowheads and maybe an atlatl. I always remembered that from like, Social studies, I don't know if anybody else remembers the atlatl, but I've always remembered that, and I've never seen one, and I've never seen one used, but I bet that's what he's doing right now. So, so last week was Easter, as Paul mentioned, and so way to go, Christians. After Easter, Christians, we're all proud of you um, for being here. That being said, what you have just walked into is the risen Lord And the responsibility of believers. So last week, Brad went to great difficulty to explain that our faith is not based on our works. It's not based on our deeds. It's not based really on anything in and of ourselves. It is all completely on the work of Christ. It's grace that is afforded to us. And and I thought instead of parachuting back down into Genesis, what would be appropriate would be, I mean, everybody last week, for for the most part, everybody read the same sermon last week about the goodness of God and the victory over death in Christ that we have that is afforded to believers. So before we went back to Genesis, I, I wanted us to look at the risen Lord and what that means. And so what we have in Luke chapter 24 is what picks up after the resurrection of Christ and how the believers responded and really what that tells us as believers about how we should respond to following a Lord that is risen and has victory over sin and over death. Guys, you know this, our, our lives are beginning to change a little bit. The grass is growing and our four-month hiatus is ending and what we thought looked really great is now nothing but weeds. And so Lowe's and Home Depot have been making a killing over the past month as we try to just make our yard not look as bad as the neighbors. At least that's how I do it. When I'm driving down the street, if theirs looks better, I know, okay, I got to cut the grass and fertilize. As long as their weeds are higher than mine, I'm like, relative, baby. I mean, this is good. Everybody else is like, hogs are at least keeping up with things, right? But as soon as they cut, and now I'm in this conundrum because my neighbor over here cut his day before yesterday, and my neighbor over here has foot-high weeds. And so I'm I'm, kind of like, well, do I cut? Do I not cut? I'll probably end up cutting it sometime. Um, But I was thinking about this because two weeks ago, I was cutting the grass. We have three little boys, the youngest of which is a year and a half old, and his name is Ames. And Ames was outside, most likely naked, sitting in the grass. There was probably water being sprayed. I don't know. But he was sitting in the grass while I was going to cut. And I just let the kids kind of run amok while I cut, as long as they're not on the side that stuff's flying out occasionally. You know what I'm talking about? Guys, you know what I'm talking about. The right side of the mower is the no kid side. The left side of the mower, that's okay. All right? So you kind of cut accordingly. Well, I was turning, and Ames had found himself positioned in our yard in this particular place where you have to go through. You know, it's kind of like two different divisions. And he was sitting there, and he, he knew that I'd been cutting the grass. It wasn't like he all of a sudden got, got startled. But he looked up, and dad, well, he wasn't, it wasn't daddy that was coming toward him that scared him. It's this very large, red, yelling thing that's making a bunch of noise and throwing stuff, right? And so what does he do? Well, he does what any baby, for the most part, would likely do. He starts to cry, 
And, and, and he really starts to cry. And I'm like, at this point, you got to know I'm not going to run you over, buddy. We went to so much time and trouble for this year and a half. It's not going to end right now, okay? Like, we've got a plan, all right? And, and so he's sitting there, and, and, and he is just bawling. You know how kids get so scared they can't get away sometimes? Like, they, he couldn't move. So I, I let go of the lawnmower, and I walk over, and I pick him up. And now I'm thinking, oh, this will be a fun thing. I don't want him to be that kid who's scared of lawnmowers, you know, like they're playing football one day and someone starts it up and he like runs home. Like, I don't want that kid. And so I'm like, okay, well, I've got to desensitize him to it. And so I pick him up and I I put him on my hip and I start pushing together. And, And what I notice is incredible. The very thing that used to cause dread when it was coming toward him is now something that he finds delight in. He's on on the hip of his father, and he even, at a year and a half old, starts reaching down to push the mower. You see, he was finding joy in doing the work of his father. And and, and in that moment, I was like, oh, that made my sermon pretty easy. Thank you, Lord. I'll find some scripture, too. But, But it was a moment where I was like, yeah, I mean, is that not us? We, we. If we've spent time in God's word, if we know the work of Christ, then we, we realize that our sin has brought dread upon us. We deserve that side of the lawnmower. That's what our sin has borne for us, that this thing would bear down upon us. We have every right to be frozen in fear, every right to be terrified, but we have a father who has sent in a substitute. We, ha- we have a savior that was sent for us in Christ Jesus, and the Father stops the wrath before it reaches us. But that's not the whole story. You see, the risen Lord is true. Last week is true, but there's an expectation that follows. And the expectation that follows is that we, as sons and as daughters, as children of God, would be in the arms of our Heavenly Father, Not just sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, part of the family of God, just happy to be here. No, in the arms of our Heavenly Father, but putting our hand. As me, I mean, can you imagine what good is a one and a half year old going to do pushing a lawnmower? It's not going anywhere. Yeah, our our maybe our our duty and our works don't seem like a whole lot, but when they're in the arms of our Father, it produces great things. So that's what we're going to talk about. If, uh, if, if you haven't found it yet, if you're using the Pew Bible, you're going to be on page 885, unless you've got a new one. I don't know where you are there. Use the table of contents. That's allowed here. Um, and, and what we're going to do, we're going to start in verse 13. Let me make sure that's right. Yeah, we're going to start in verse 13. And I'm going to move fairly quickly because this is a narrative. So it's a story. It's like story time, all right? And so I'm going to move pretty quickly through the narrative of what's happening, gleaning a couple of truths out of it. And then when we get to the very end of the chapter, when Jesus has something to say about this, his closing remarks in the book of Luke after his resurrection, what is it that he's going to say? Of all the things that Jesus could say, what is he going to say? When we get there, we're going to throttle way back and we're going to slow down. And I want you to to look for two things. I'm going to pray for us. The first thing that I want you to look for as we read through is the work of Christ. And the second thing that I want you to be looking for is an understanding of God's word. Because what we find is that when we see the work of Christ and we understand the word of God, that's not the end of the equation, right? Like if any of you guys remember A squared plus B squared equals 
right? Like, why do we still remember that? I don't know. But it's, it's the same thing here. The, the work of our Savior, in addition, with an understanding of Scripture, yields something. And that something is the responsibility of believers. Let's pray together. Father, I, I am really excited to be here. I, I, I'm so excited that we are a people who have been delivered the word of God. What an incredible thing. I, I, I know that it can become something that maybe we get used to. I, I know that right now there are probably people who are meeting with one page and they're just pouring over it. And here we are with, with books a foot underneath our seat. God, we're, we're inundated in a sense with your word. And I feel like sometimes that's a knock inoculated us to the power of it, but Father, may that not be the case this morning. And, and ultimately, the reality is this. There's, there is no hope for this message or any other message being preached today if your spirit doesn't attend it. Our, our minds can't conceive the things of God if not for your spirit enlightening. We, we, we certainly can't do the things of God if your spirit doesn't quicken us to do that. And so, Father, I, I pray over us. I, I, I pray, God, that in this room that there are those who are reborn and regenerate, renewed and redeemed, and there are those, most likely, who are not. But all of us, Father, need you. All of us need Christ. That never changes. And so, as we dig into your word, and as churches around our area dig into your word. May your spirit attend to us. May you open our minds. May you break through our pride sometimes. We should never leave this room the same. How does one encounter the most high God and not be changed? So Father, that's my prayer for me and it's my prayer for everybody in this room and Anybody who's sitting under the teaching of your word, that they would be changed more into the image of Christ, that they would see their sin and see their need for a Savior. And it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to it, everybody. Chapter 24 of the book of Luke, verse 13. Now, before I read, let me give you the cliff notes, the sparks notes, the, the cheat sheet of reading this. Those two things that I told you to look for, the, the work of of Christ and the understanding of Scripture, it's all over this chapter of Luke. The key word that, that you kind of need to look for is the word suffering. Whenever you see the word suffering, what Luke, what God's word is bringing to the forefront is the work of Christ. It's not just talking about the suffering of Christ. It's talking about the gospel. It's talking about the work that Christ did on the cross. You've got to be looking for that. And the other thing is this, in looking for understanding of God's word, scripture or scriptures is going to come up. It's referred to a couple of different ways. So have your eyes open for that and let's read. Again, this is a narrative. <clears throat> so it's going to, it, it very much is a story. True story. Luke 24 verse 13. That very day being the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that very day, two of them who, if you look to the context of the paragraph above, were believers or followers of Christ, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, <clears throat> excuse me, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what, 
What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Look at their demeanor as they're, as they're talking with Christ. They freeze up. They look sad. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones. I I, I mean, you've got to see the picture here. You've got to see the story. Jesus knew what went on in Jerusalem, right? I mean, it's Jesus. But he walks up and he sees these two, Cleopas and another. A lot of times we think it's a guy It could very well have been his wife. We don't know. But these two believers are walking and what Jesus sees is hopelessness. They freeze up. They, they, They look at him like he's from another planet. What are you talking about the bible goes so far as to specifically say they look sad the text literally says we had hoped he was the one to redeem that's what we had hoped you see hopelessness prevents us from seeing things clearly hopelessness as a follower of christ is a tragedy it's it's a theological disaster as a believer, to be hopeless. And, and I, I know how it plays out, right? It, it's not that anyone is saying, God can't. I, I, I don't think there are very many in this room who when they're praying for something or someone, say, God, I, God can't do this. I, I don't think that's usually our concern. Our concern is that God won't, right? I, I mean, isn't that usually where our hopelessness comes in? And, and what we want to say is, we, we pray and we pray and we say, your will, which I think is an appropriate thing to pray, but I think as we look through the whole context of Scripture, we see David in, in the Psalms, and we see people just pouring out their heart to God, and they're saying, God, I, I, I need this. I want this. I, I, I know that you can. I don't know if you will, but, but this is what I'm asking for. We've been working through the book of Exodus in high school and in middle school, and we're, we're finishing up chapters 32 and 33, and this, this is the place in Exodus where Moses goes before God after God says, because of the sinfulness of those people, I'm going to destroy them, and Moses goes to God and says, don't do it, and the Bible says God relents, and this causes people to say, well, whoa, are you telling me God changed? I thought God didn't change. Well, first, let me say this. How incredible of a prayer for Moses to pray. I mean, this nation was probably five times bigger than our city. We don't know exactly, but it was a huge number of people that God was on the brink of bringing destruction. And Moses 
boldly comes to him and says, you can't do this. And it says God relented. You see, God didn't change. You had a whole bunch of sinners over here doing a whole bunch of sin. That kind of continued, and it continues to this day. And then you've got a righteous and a holy God that hates sin. Lawnmower, right? You've got this. Well, what changed was not that God stopped hating sin. What changed was not that sinners stopped sinning. What changed was that Moses inserted himself into the situation, and he said, put it on me instead. And he prefigures Christ. God didn't change the situation. Changed. As Christians, we should not be hopeless. What can't God do? And on top of that, I understand that things don't always go well for us. And I am not preaching you a prosperity gospel. But I will tell you this. God loves to give good gifts to his kids. And he also tells us that he works all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his service. So even if our prayers don't go our way, it doesn't mean we stop praying. It just means we start trusting all the more. But let me encourage you with this, the very first to follow Christ were skeptics. The very first people to follow Christ were skeptics. We see it all over in, in verse 17. They're looking sad. In verse 21, we had hoped you were the one to redeem Israel. If you go back, I didn't read this text, but if you look at verse 11, the disciples say they thought it was an idle tale. They, they had thought that, well, I guess things didn't go the way that we had expected them to. When they hear what has happened, they're skeptical. That's why, that's why Jesus told Thomas, touch, see. All of them are skeptical. To me, that's a huge hope. God loves saving skeptics. The people in your life who you feel are the farthest away from ever seeking God because they're so skeptical of it, whether they're intellectual or life hasn't put them in a position where you feel like they're going to respond or their logic just doesn't line up. God doesn't have a problem with human logic and reason. He created it. That's not a struggle for him. He's not like, oh man, that guy is bright. Jeez, who gave him that brain? Wait a minute. God doesn't have a problem with skeptics. He loves saving skeptics. This should give you hope for that person or those people in your life that you are on the brink of stopping praying for. You've given up, you've just catch, you know what God, I, God loves to save skeptics. Absolutely loves to save skeptics. So he looks at them and he calls them foolish. That's, that's what we see here in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have smoke, spoken. This, this is not an encouragement. This is not an attaboy. This is a, you're a fool. This is not what you want to hear Jesus say. Okay, wherever you are on hearing the audible voice of God, I'll tell you this. When I see Jesus, what I want to hear him say is, well done, my good and faithful servant. If O fool comes out, I'm in a world of hurt. But we, like, we, we read over this, we're like, oh, oh, fool. Yeah, okay, so they were being foolish. Like, that's a huge deal. I, I, I was thinking about this because... You can't really discipline someone unless there's an expectation, right? You can't be pulled over unless there's a speed limit, okay? You can't, I can't discipline my children unless there's this known expectation that we don't punch people in the eye. Like, you understand this now. You were foolish. Here comes discipline. Here's my life 12 hours ago. <laughs> I made dinner. Thank you. 
We had Tostino's pizza rolls. Thank you. <clears throat> and a microwave bag of broccoli. Um, and my boys know when dad cooks, it's just like, if I get a fork, that's good, right? So <laughs> half the time we're just eating with our hands. It's very barbarian, I think, sometimes in our house. Um, I got my kids in front of lawnmowers. And, <clears throat> don't call defects. We're hoping to adopt sometime. Um, so I, 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 I make these Tostino's pizza rolls. And Thad, because he's Thad, has decided that before the meal, what would be appropriate would be to find a pair of scissors, sneak into the bottom drawer of the refrigerator, cut up as many gogurts as he can, and inhale them. It's like a boneyard of yogurt scraps in the kitchen. And I'm like, Ellis, how many did you eat? He's like, I didn't eat any. That's most likely true, okay? That's, Ellis has been disciplined a couple years longer than Thad. And so he's like, all right, I really wasn't on that. Ames can't open them. I mean, he's crying because he can't get anything past the beginning. There's all this yogurt in the bottom and he can't. And then there's this boneyard of scraps of gogurt. And I, Thad, did you have some yogurt? Yes. And then he hands me the scissors to cut another one. I get it. Dad's not on the ball, but we're going to have dinner, okay? Everybody get in your seat. So I, I made these pizza rolls. Well, Thad isn't real hungry. But when something's on the plate, you finish it, right? Generation before mine, okay? When there's something on the plate, you finish it. And so I've decided Thad has walked away from too many meals. I put my foot down tonight. You're finishing whatever's on your plate. And so he's got one and a half Tostino's pizza rolls. Ellis and I are done, and we're watching Alaska on Netflix. And so I go down to sit on the couch with, couch with Ellis, and I say, Thad, you are not getting down it doesn't matter if, if everybody's on the other side of the house. You are not getting down until you finish your pizza rolls. So we're watching Alaska. And I, I, I mean, Thad's been in the chair for 10 minutes just crying. Like just, okay. I sit down for 45 seconds. All of a sudden, Daddy, I'm done. Now, I can't see him when I'm sitting down. Daddy, I'm done. I stand up and I look at him verbatim. Thaddeus, are you lying to me? No, Daddy. So... I get up from the couch, I turn, I go up the steps to the bar we're eating, and right as I turn, I see Thad's face, and it drops, and it looks to the corner of the floor. He's giving himself up. He's giving it up. What do we do when we are approached with holiness in light of our sin? What did Adam and Eve do? We hide, right? Okay, what did he do with his pizza rolls? He hid them in the best place possible. There. He throws them on the ground. Oh, Dad's not going to see that, right? I mean, come on. Alaska's on. He's watching this bear get shot. He's not going to look on the... I turn. I watch his eyes go down. Guilty. Guilty. And so, I explain that that pizza roll and a half on the floor is his. And I know it because I ate the rest including the drooly ones that the baby left behind. So I know those are his. You see, there was an expectation. And when the expectation is not met, that is not surprised to get reprimanded and to get a spanking. Neither should we. My kid can't hide a Tostino's roll from me. You can't hide your stuff from God. That's much more difficult. We can't hide those things from God. 
and expectation existed. So let's get back to our text. What is that expectation? It is the responsibility of believers. Verse 26. And he says this. Remember the cliff notes. Remember the words I want you looking for. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Here's what Jesus says to them in light of this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Number one, the work of Christ. Was it not necessary? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is how they would have referred to the Old Testament. He, being Jesus, interpreted to them all, uh, I'm sorry, I lost, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I can't imagine what it must have been like To have the word made flesh explain the word to flesh. Can you see these guys in Sunday school the next week? How's everybody doing? Y'all been praying out? Everybody been reading? Yes, okay. Uh, Walk to Emmaus, guys, or guy, girl. Uh, What have you guys been studying? Oh, we just spent about two hours and 20 minutes with Jesus. Average human walking pace, three miles an hour, seven mile walk. They probably spent about two hours talking with Christ. So, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and and, and tell us about Isaiah. We just spent time with Jesus explaining the whole Bible to us. But no, really, let's see what you've got. I mean, those guys. But that's exactly what he does. I, I can't, there's no way for us to know exactly what Jesus said. The Bible doesn't tell us. But one of my favorite little phrases from Tim Keller, I don't know if any of you guys are Tim Keller fans, but in 2007, he was at the Gospel Coalition. And uh, there are going to be a couple phrases that are popping up as, as I read through them. Here is how Tim Keller looked at the Old Testament and pointed it forward to Christ. I think maybe similarly to how Jesus did to these two. He says this. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and the familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love for us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus, I love this one, Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Of it. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. And Jesus walks them through and he says, Do you see this? It was pointing to me. 
the Bible, the whole thing, it's been pointing to me and what I would do. The work that I would do on the cross on your behalf. Genesis all the way through. It was about me. The Bible goes on. In verse 28, our story picks up. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but a lot of people believe that the reason Jesus acted as though he was going to go further was because he wanted to give them the opportunity to, to, to afford to him hospitality. Jesus knew that he was welcome to walk in. He acted as though he was going further to give them the opportunity to show hospitality, which would be the mark of believers. We can't dig into that a whole lot today, but so we went in to stay with him. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did, we, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? May our hearts burn as we read God's word, not today, but every. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. That Jesus, they, they finally see him, and then he disappears. Like, come on, man. We finally realize who you are. Hang out. Let's talk for a minute. He's gone. And, and they get up. If you're reading the ESV, I think it says they, they rose that same hour. It, it basically means immediately, which I find interesting and is a great, there aren't kids, if this was the fifth Sunday and there were kids church kids in here, they would love this because they left the plate uneaten. They just got up and left the food. They prepared this thing and they got up and they left their Tostino's pizza rolls. And Jesus didn't mind it a bit because they were like, we've got bigger things to do than to eat, right? I mean, can't you see your eight-year-old? I'm sorry, dad, I, I can't finish my pizza rolls today. I must be about the work of my father. For man does not live by bread alone. I, 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 I just love this. They get up and they move immediately. And here's what we see. Remember what two things to be looking for. The work of Christ. The understanding of the scriptures and what that yields. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. What an incredible word to roll out of God amidst a group of people who had sinned against and abandoned him at their last encounter. Isn't it a blessing to be on the other side of the wrath of God? That Jesus shows up and the first thing that proceeds from his mouth is peace. Isaiah 26.3 God keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts him. Uh, you can even see in this 
a picture of the Old Testament. Joseph seeing his brothers, knowing who they were without being known himself. And how he had every right and every power to just blast them and diminish them and ruin them because of the way that they had mistreated him. But instead, he shows them grace and love and Jesus all the more so. In fact, he may have just explained that story to two of them. Peace, he says. And Jesus goes on and he shows them more grace and more love because they still don't know exactly what's going on. Remember, they've heard, it's kind of like they're halfway there, but they're not quite. We've heard these stories, but we haven't seen for ourselves. We we don't remember, for whatever reason, that you said you were going to rise on the third day, even though your enemies do and have posted guards at the tomb accordingly. We're just a little slower, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm the same guy, Jesus is saying. I'm the same Jesus, the one who walked with you and fished with you. Now, given I'm different, I'm in a resurrected body, it has different things that it can do, and what a wonderful thing to one day dig into what that will be like for us, especially for those of you who are suffering with constant pain and difficulty and things like this. Praise be to God that this is not our whole lot in life, but that we have this resurrected body that is waiting for us if we're a believer. But, but he says, touch me and see. Verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy. Now this is okay. This isn't a hopelessness. This isn't a, nah, you're not really Jesus. This is a, can you believe what is happening in front of you? Can you believe what we're seeing? Can you believe who we're touching? Can you believe who this is? They disbelieve for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them once again, proving that it was him, not a spirit, not an apparition, not a ghost or phantom. This is the resurrected Lord. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, here it comes, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you see this? Well, We're still missing something. Where's the work of Christ? Well, here it comes. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now we throttle back. Did you see it again? We have the work of Christ. We see it in the word suffering. We have an understanding of the scriptures. It literally verbatim says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here's where we've got to slow down. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, of all the things that he could have done, here is what he left with them. And this is why we are going to slow down now and consider the responsibility of believers in light of the risen Savior. If you have known, if you have responded to the work of Christ, 
The gospel is that we were all sinners without hope, deserving the righteous wrath of God. But by his grace, he sent his son to take the punishment for us that we may be forgiven. And that in being forgiven, we weren't just given a blank slate, but all of the righteousness of Christ was imputed upon us. We moved from one side of the lawnmower to the other. We moved from the outside of God's house to the inside of God's house. And he says, you are now family. And here is what Jesus says to his family. Here's what Jesus says to those who have believed in the risen Lord. Verse 45, he, un- he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If you are a note taker, this is when I would recommend it. Only God can do that. Only God can open our mind to the scriptures. This is why I tell you that logic and reason is no problem for God because God can deal with it. Only God can do this. Let me flip over. Actually, Christine, would you just throw it up? 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. <clears throat> I'll raise you. Beat you. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 and 16 says this. It's referring to Jews. Not Jews in the past like we usually do. Jews today. People who still don't believe that Christ was the Savior. People who are still waiting on a Messiah. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about that. Their minds were hardened, verse 14. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It is only through Christ that understanding of scriptures can be attained. Only God does that. Jesus has absolute faith in the Old Testament. He has no problem with this. If if there's a problem with the Old Testament, there's a problem with Jesus. Because he leaned on it. He relied upon it. He was not just a New Testament kind of a guy. He opens their minds to understand it. And as I was reading this, I asked myself this question. If that is the case, and what an incredible thing, To have Jesus sit with you and all of a sudden your mind is just opened and you understand the scriptures. Shouldn't that be kind of like the end of the chapter? Like, what do you add to that? If you understand this, what do you add? Well, I think what you add are the things that you want to highlight, the things that you want to put in bold, the things that you want to italicize. And unless you bought a Bible different than mine, mine did not come pre-highlighted. Occasionally you'll get an italic here or something in all caps there. But mine did not come highlighted and marked up with notes, etc. and so on. In scripture, the way that the word of God is underlined and highlighted and emboldened is by repeating something. So here, of all the things that Jesus said, here is what he says, verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. He says, know the suffering of your Lord. Because if you know the suffering of your, this is the responsibility, in case I didn't make this connection yet, when I'm saying, what are the responsibility of believers? Here you go, point one. Know the suffering 
of your Savior. Because if you know the suffering of Christ, it is going to push against any amount of cultural Christianity in you. It's going to push against the prosperity gospel. It's going to push against self-help deism. And you're not going to think that this is about you or that this is about you or that your own life is about you. When we realize the suffering of our Christ, we expect difficulty in this life. But we know that it is far greater to have difficulty now looking forward to the great hope that we have. Because you can't escape it. You can live life however you want to. You're not going to escape difficulty. He goes on, he says, and on the third day, rise from the dead. Hope. One of the expectations of believers is that they would have hope. That's why he called them fools who did not. Hopelessness ought not. And guys, I'm not saying that difficult things don't happen in life. But either you do believe or you don't believe that God's in control. Either you do believe that he will give you everything that you need for life and godliness, or you don't believe it. And I know that many times in life we can be in the place where we're saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I do believe, but at least he's talking to Jesus saying, help my unbelief. Abject hopelessness ought not be a part of our life. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28, even when things don't go the way that we would have them. Verse 47, the next thing that he says is this. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in my name. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Repentance and forgiveness proclaimed. Evangelism is an expectation. Brother, sister, it is not a gift. That doesn't mean people aren't more gifted than you in it. There are people more gifted than me in it. There are people more gifted than probably anyone. Except one guy. I don't know who he is. There's always that one. I'd be inclined to think it might be you, Kwame. I'm just saying, I'd be inclined. Logan, maybe. I spend time with you guys. You guys are an encouragement to me in the way that you love God's word, love sinners, and put it out there. Evangelism is not a gift. It's an expectation. When we were in staff meeting the other day, I don't remember what text we were reading, but Robert said that it just hit him that we are entrusted with the gospel. That was entrusted to you. What are you doing with it? What are we doing with it? Goes on. Next expectation. To all nations. As Springer was up here praying, our hearts should realize that missions is not optional. You should be going, be sending, or be praying. In my opinion, and you, you, you can argue with me if you want, there is no other position for missions in a Christian life. You're either going or you're sending or you're praying because there are people who don't have this. There are people who want to understand the word of God. There are people that God has chosen that still don't have this sitting in front of them. That should burn our hearts. Just as we read that opening the scriptures burned the hearts of those who were walking with Christ for a couple of hours. Beginning from Jerusalem. The next expectation, start where you are. You don't have to make this big plan. You don't have to make a 10-step process to being a responsible Christian. Stay away from that type of a list. Just start where you are. Start with your neighbor when you're cutting the grass. Start with your coworker. Start with the other parents on your kid's team. 
Start with the waitress at lunch today. We make it like crazy simple. I don't have it on me, but there's a little card. It's sitting at the information table. Grab one on your way out. Put a few in your purse or in your wallet. All it says is Crosspoint Church, service times. You, you can just hand it to them and say, hey, I'd love to invite you to a church where we talk about Jesus Christ. I, I'd love for you to come and hear what God's word has to say. Take that first step. See if God won't follow it up. And let me give you an easy one. Sometimes I feel like in this moment, you're like, great, I've got more stuff I have to do. You also need to be encouraged that you're probably doing a lot of things and not giving yourself credit for it. Are you married? Are you staying married? Do you realize what that screams to our culture? Do you realize how incredible it is to see a husband and a wife, sinner A and sinner B, who get slammed together, and for whatever reason in our culture, we think butterflies and rainbows are going to fly out of that thing, decide that we're going to stick it out for five years, and 10 years, and 20 years, and 30 years, and 50 years, and 75 years if God gives us that. It's okay that you struggle. I struggle in my marriage. All of us pastors struggle in our marriage. But when we refuse to step away from the responsibility of believers, we do something to this world. A couple of years ago, one in every three children was born into a home without a dad. It's now up to four out of ten. I gave you a math equation already, so let's reduce. Two out of five. Two out of every five Homes that a child is born into, there is no dad. It used to be common that you could drive down the street and know that that home had a family and that home had a family and that home had a family. I think it's now in the minority for the typical home. Let this, let this sit on you. It is now typical for the home that you see to not be a traditional family. And we do not have a, a college big enough to where you're like, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's just college dorm life. No, I, I, it's because marriage is not what it has been. It is not this. So just by staying married and fighting and striving against your sin with another sinner for the glory of God, you are living out the expectation that Christ has put on us as believers. Sometimes it's not as hard as we make it out to be. Sometimes it is. Verse 48. This is the final one that I'll, I'll put. And I think this may be an asterisk to what Jesus is saying. You are witnesses of these things. He's saying you're responsible for this. You've seen it. You're responsible for it. I got a phone call a couple of years ago. My buddy said, hey, somebody was going to come. We're filling out our will. We're about to go overseas on, uh, on the mercy ship. And he couldn't make it. He couldn't get off work. I just need somebody to come in and witness my will. So I went over there, got a coat, sat down, and watched them for an hour and a half sign papers. Why? Because if something happened to him, there was a witness that said to his children, I know what the will of your father was. I was there when it happened. It's true. And that's what Jesus is saying. You are witnesses of this. There's an expectation coming from this. You're part of the family. I know that this is hard. But that's why the gospel tells us to count the cost. I'm not saying you can't find an easier religion. You can. There's a plethora of them out there. It's just not the one with Jesus in it. I'm not saying you can't find an easier life. I guarantee you there's a much easier life than walking with Christ. It's just that you're missing Christ. I know that it's hard, but it's worth it. And I think after saying these things, 
Jesus then says this for a reason, verse 49. He tells you that amidst all of these expectations of you as a believer, that you are not alone. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the one who will give you the words to say, the one who will give you the attitude to maintain, the one that will give you the hope to reside in when hope has failed. You're not alone, believer. You're never alone. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Legalism, I've given you this expectation. And I feel like it's important to tell you, I was listening to Piper the other day, and legalism is not following God's word. That's not what legalism is. Following this, believing this, going to church on Sunday. On my way in here, there's a guy with his golf clubs propped up. I'm sitting at the red light. I'm on my way to preach a sermon. He's on his way to play golf. I know what we can say. Well, Will, I can take a Sunday off. You're being legalistic. Following God's word is not legalism. That's holiness. Legalism is when you think that by following this, you're saved. Following this is not legalism. That's holiness. You're supposed to be distinct, set apart, different. It's when you think that by doing those things, you're saved. We are saved by grace alone. And so after hearing that, I decided I would stop speeding. It's a true story. I don't make stories up, just so you know. Like, these are all true. I, I don't fabricate stuff. So I decided last week I was going to quit speeding. I was listening to a podcast. And I was like, quit speeding. I'm like, all right, I'll quit speeding. Hardest thing, like, ever. Oh, my gosh. You would think it's just like, we'll just ease up a little bit. Like, there is this ball of angst and tension inside of me everywhere I go. And I start to realize, I, I, I always thought that people just drove slower because their lives were at a slower pace. I, I'm just far busier than they are. But what I think I've started to realize is that by slowing down, life slows down around me. And I, have, I like see things. I didn't know that was there. It used to be a blur, and now I see it. Wow. So I decided to stop speeding. I'm listening. It's a nine-minute, 42-second-long podcast. I get halfway through it on the way home. All right, that must be it. Go home for lunch. Forget to turn it on on the way back. Making a phone call, right? On the phone. Whoop, whoop. You have got to be kidding me. I just committed I was going to quit speeding. I'm going to live a holy life. All right, God, you, 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 over. I get pulled over on the way to church after lunch, after just committing that I was going to quit speeding. Oh, does God not smile on us? <laughs> and so I pull off to the side. I'm not upset because to me, it's hilarious. Like, it's been a good week. I've been in the Word. I've been preaching. I've been listening to my podcast. You've got to be kidding me. But whatever, all things for the good. <sighs> and the officer comes over, license and registration. I left my license at home. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you have your insurance? I do. Here you go. He doesn't give me a ticket. And I turn to him and I say, thank you, but why? I don't know if that's wise. I'm not. <laughs> I 
he, he said, you know, sometimes it's just a character call. He said, I didn't know what to expect, you know, with you. You kind of waved at me as you were pulling over. <laughs> it's my personality coming out. He said, you were honest and you were forthright. And, and he said, so I, I'm not giving you a ticket. And, and I said, are you a believer? He said, yeah, I am. And so there... With the blue lights behind me, God opened up an opportunity to talk about the beauty of grace as I was in the midst of receiving it. You see, the responsibility of believers is not a weight. It is not a burden that we treat it such. The responsibility of believers is to rely on the Holy Spirit, to put our nose in the book, and to be about the work of our Father as little as we can push on the lawnmower of his will. That's what we've been called to. And we see this because of the work of Christ and because of an understanding of the scriptures. This is not a book of legalism. It's a book for your holiness and for your good. We may come into the family by grace, but there's an expectation Brad loves to say that the faith that saves is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. The fruit of our tree is what tells us what kind of a tree we are. I, I want to encourage you guys with two other things, and then I'm going to pray for us. I've already talked about missions. I've already talked about evangelism. These are what are referred to as the means of grace, the way that we come into the family of God. They're also the way that we continue. And I just have to say this. Be people who pray. My hope is that we as a body would grow in ever-increasing measure as believers of a risen Lord who recognize our responsibility. We need to be a people who pray, not just that God can, but that he would. And that we would plead with him for the cynics in our life for those who have yet to respond to the gospel. This is incredible. And I know that we've probably all got a million of them, but it's incredible. And you know the difference of checking it off and getting on your knees in it. Do the work of the son and the daughter of God. Love this word. I'll give you a, a little help. Memorizing scripture has not always been easy for me. It's a wonderful little app called Scripture Typer. It's got a maroon background on it. It has served me very well to being in the word and memorizing the word, and I hope that it would serve you as well. Yeah. Understand the suffering of Christ. Know the work of Christ. Pray for an understanding of the word. That we would live out the responsibility that we have as believers. Father, that's my prayer. It's my prayer over all of us. That though we may be a grace-purchased people and we may operate under grace, that we would not allow that grace to really be a, a scapegoat for our lawlessness but that we would realize that being part of a family is not just having the rights and the privileges, but the responsibilities as well. 
And Father, these responsibilities are not burdensome. Father, yes, it's work, and yes, it's hard, and many times it screams against our flesh and our sin, but it is for that very reason that it sanctifies us and makes us more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, may we pour into that. May we drive into that, that we would not just be people who feel like, I've responded to the gospel, now on with my day, living life as I please, but that we would grab our Bibles, that we would love people, that we would love God, and that we would be about the unique work that you have called each of us individually to. That's why there is no perfect checklist, because the work that you do and the will that you have for each of us in this room is unique to bring praise to your name. I pray that that's what our lives would be about. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.